The following episode contains some strong language. So I just talking to the mic. Yes. I'm actually recording this right now and we'll edit the quotes down for the article. Uh-huh. In 1994, nine years after Galen left for Hollywood, this reporter named Elisa Lee wrote a profile on my uncle. I don't know what the interview sounded like, but this is how I imagine it. All right, then. So, I got the materials you sent me about yourself, but for these kinds of profiles, I like starting at the beginning, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's fine. Great. This was the only article I could find about my uncle's Hollywood career. It was published in a newspaper called Asian Week, which billed itself as the voice of Asian America. This was a big deal for Galen. The reporter had written about filmmakers like John Woo and Ang Lee. The headline was, From Gangs to Glamour, Galen Ewan's Refreshingly Frank and Furious Outlook. I mean, I've always been an outsider, but you know, I'm not here to cry. You know, all those other Asians in the gang were all just looking for the same things. Love and acceptance. Huh. I mean, still, I still have a lot of friends in those gangs, but they really need to get out of that world. I don't think most people want to see what I've seen. Uh, I wish I had it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot. I'm 42, and it's been 20 years, and it's still difficult for me to fall asleep at night. You know, with the memories of what I've seen and done and experienced. What, what made you think that acting would even be a way out? It just seems like such a radically different life. I just lost everything I had. And then one day I was just watching General Hospital on the TV and there was this storyline about Asian gangs. And I thought, I can do that. Why? Because I lived it. Reading this profile was like getting a view into how Galen saw himself in Hollywood. How he went from binging soaps on Papa's couch, supposedly sleeping with a gun under his pillow, to selling his life story as a screenplay that would eventually get made into a movie starring Rob Lowe. My uncle might have come to Hollywood as a former drug robber and pimp who'd never acted a day in his life. But the same attitude that helped Galen thrive in the Oakland streets came in handy when breaking into Hollywood. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman. This is Magnificent Jerk, the true story of a fake story about a real life. Episode four, low life number one. I do know, at least what he told me, when he first came into L.A., he found himself an agent right away. Like his first day there, he got himself an agent. Don McGuilly is an old friend of Galen's and a working actor. He's been in TV shows and movies like Seinfeld and Fifty First Dates. I don't know how. I don't know what he said. But I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? Because uh, Galen... When you see him with his tank top and he's got that Tweety Bird tattoo on his arm, he looks like the life he's led. He looks like some gang member off the streets. That tattoo was even more innocent than Tweety Bird. It was Casper the Friendly Ghost, Galen's favorite cartoon growing up. But moving on. Casting people look at what can I use this person for? And there is a lot of roles of of gang members and friends of gang members or people who live on the poor side of town. And and Galen sort of fit that category right away. So he could be put to work, just on type. Dom first met Galen in March 1986, a few months after my uncle got to L.A. 
They were at an awards gala held by the Association of Asian Pacific American Artists. It was a swanky affair at the Beverly Hills Four Seasons. And right from the start, Galen was working the room. This guy came up to me, short dude, very uh, slight, but he was wearing this green hat. And he introduced himself, and, and that was Galen. He met actors and writers. A stuntman I reached out to said they'd bonded over motorcycles. I would read him as an eager young actor. A lot of actors, when they first get off the bus, are filled with the optimism of youth. The big moment of the night came when 81-year-old Chinese-American actor Key Luke accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award. His career spanned over 50 years, including a 1934 Greta Garbo movie. By my count, he was in at least 10 Charlie Chan films, which, I gotta add, starred a white actor as the Chinese lead character. Key played the original Kato in the 1940s Green Hornet movie series. But to Galen, Key Luke stood out for something else. He was one of the actors in that Asian storyline on General Hospital, Galen's first inspiration to come to Los Angeles. It was just uh, very cool to be all amongst these veteran actors and all the hoopla and like that. And, and he looked like he was enjoying himself and very hopeful. Back then, Dom was an acting teacher, mostly for Asian-American actors. Galen started taking his classes, and there's one workshop he remembers most. I'd say I had about 10 actors. They developed their individual characters in rehearsal, we constructed a storyline, and we created a bus where people could get on and off. We had uh, folding chairs representing the seats on a bus and a bus driver. And Galen created a character who seemed drunk or on drugs. He got in a fight with someone, then acted like he was getting nauseous. And what he did was he took a mouthful of uh, Tic Tacs. Well, he, he coughed all these Tic Tacs, which kind of looked like he was throwing up. And then he, he left the bus, which in my mind, I thought that was ingenious. Tic Tacs, it was brilliant. He is his best asset, the life that he has led. In this world of make-believe, where there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, Galen was the real, as far as they are concerned, he's the real thing. Galen would go on to build his whole Hollywood career around his dramatic past in Oakland. And he told that Asian Week reporter it was how he got one of his first roles. It was this TV show called Noble House. I was at this casting call, and they were looking for this, like, Chinatown gang leader for this TV show. So I burst into the casting person's office and put down the newspaper, which had the article of me being arrested for extortion. The guy was like, wow, you're the real thing. And gave me a script. <laughs> Wait, that cannot be true. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, that's the truth. I don't know if he walked around with a gun in his pocket or, you know hidden behind his coat, but he could have a swagger to him. Julia Nixon is an actress and longtime friend of Galen's. She became famous after starring in one of the Rambo movies. She and I also share something in common. We both lived with Galen. It was a you in the bedroom that's like on the right. Yes. Down the hallway. Yes. Yeah. And I felt like yeah. there was a bathroom like connected to no, it. No, the bathroom's inside. Oh, the bathroom was, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was That's inside. what's a great part yes. of that room yeah. for a girl. Yeah. Yes, that it was like all, I know, yeah. I remember that because I was like, oh, I don't have to go in the hallway. This right. is great. <laughs> <laughs> Julia and Galen met in Hong Kong on the set of Noble House. 
It was a kind of sequel to a popular miniseries at the time called Shogun, and it starred Pierce Brosnan. As far as I know, this was Galen's first speaking role. Give me the bag. What? Who are you? I'm the werewolf. Now give me the bag. Here. Now, where is my son? Just keep walking. Don't look around. But my son, you promised. So his scenes were mostly with a wonderful actress, Lisa Liu. She was in Joy Luck Club, and her role with with Galen, she was the innocent woman who was looking for a little adventure, and Galen was the gangster who kind of set her up so that she could scam people for money and give him a kickback. I, I don't know Galen's past in terms of his acting, but he just is the guy. It was a small part, but it was a pretty big production. After filming, Galen sent a postcard back home to Papa with the air dates for Noble House. On the back, it said, Hi, Mom. Hope everything is okay. See you when I'm in town. Love you and miss you, Galen. Throughout the late 80s and early 90s, Galen landed a string of small roles. Like, he played lowlife number one in Kindergarten Cop, and Arnold Schwarzenegger tries to shoot him. So who are you, man? Shit! I'm the party pooper. He has one line as a bookie in the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Lionheart. Bookie, bookie, what's up, man? Hey, talk to me, man. Are you going to make a bet or what? He's a server, yelling Cantonese at Angelina Jolie in Cyborg 2. These are big movies. You've probably seen my uncle on screen, playing forgettable roles that sometimes borrowed from his real life. Like, he played a pimp in an oversized blazer with a toothpick in his mouth, hassling a cop. Oh, what are you going to kick my ass, fuckface, huh? You know, I ain't about the romance. I'm down for the finance. I ain't about the romance. I'm down for the finance. Sounds a lot like what Galen supposedly said when he was an actual pimp. Then there were other roles with names like Yakuza member, smuggler, and cleaning man. Notice a trend here? Oh, hell yeah. It was horrible for all of us. Ron Yuan is an actor. He's done big budget films like the live action Mulan and one of the Fast and Furious movies. He's been acting since grade school, but in the 80s and 90s, he struggled to be taken seriously. You know, I grew up doing different kinds of plays by great playwrights, and here I am doing all these freaking low-budget martial arts films, you know, saying, yeah, kick his ass, Johnny, you know, that kind of shit. And I'm just going, I want to do film and TV, but this is not the kind of, you know, substance of work that I was looking for. So most of my earlier career was fighting against that. Ron got to Hollywood from New York around the same time as Galen, and pretty quickly, they both befriended other Asian actors. But it was tough, because they had to compete with each other, too. When we, like, sit and talk and break bread, it would always be back in those days, like, fuck, man, like, can they ever, can these parts get better? Because basically, you know, you'll you'll see me in audition, but then fucking James Hong, who's 50 years older than me, will fucking be there. And then it's just the parts were so scarce that it's just like everyone auditioned for it. Galen had no illusions about what roles he could play. Gang leaders, assistant gang leaders, part of the gang, but he was working. And what it did is gave him proximity to the places where he wanted to go. 
Galen's friend, Dom McGuilly, said Galen didn't dwell on the kind of roles he was getting. By and large, I think he saw the world as, oh, what do you want to do? Well, you better get get about it and do it. Or don't, but you got to do something. And complaining just irritates him. So you've played a Yakuza member, a pimp, a server who can't speak English. Do you worry that people will say you're selling out because you're taking stereotypical roles? (sighs) It really bugs me to hear Asians talk about selling out because they take a certain part. Interesting. Why is that? Because it mainly comes from people who want to break into Hollywood, but they can't because they're stuck doing these little plays. You can hide all you want in your little Asian theater company and bitch about your shows, but no one will hear you. If you want to make change, you got to put up or shut up. Quit crying. It takes a lot of balls to come out here to Hollywood. Quit crying. That was Galen's approach. But when I talked with a lot of Asian actors from that time, they told me the kind of stories that were so bad, they made you wonder if it was worth it. Around 1992, Ron Yuan was working as a host at a Mr. Chow restaurant in Beverly Hills. And this one guy, John Ashley, you know, producer of A-Team and a lot of other shows, was so nice. And, you know, we we got into deep talks. And finally, you know, he asked me what I did, and I told him. And, you know, never asked him for a job. Never, like, I just, you know, for me, I always wanted to earn it my way. But, you know, eventually he was doing this show called Raven. It was a TV show about this white lead character with ninja skills who goes to Hawaii to look for his long-lost son. It ran for two seasons, from 1992 to 93. As Ron remembers it, John Ashley said, there's a role on the show that's perfect for you. I think you're the guy, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the guys, you know, to make sure you get it. I'm just like, oh, John, seriously, are you sure? A quick warning. There are going to be some words here that might be upsetting. So, you know, a week goes by and comes back and he's just like, here, I want to show you this. The memo, he was so fucking pissed. You know, it was one of the executives I will not name, but it just said basically, John, enough with fucking Asians on, you know, guest stars on this show. I'm sick of it. No more fucking gooks, fucking, you know, chinks, that kind of stuff. We just, let's turn some of these characters white. And he showed it to me and my heart just dropped to my stomach. So, Galen, you said that once you started acting, you saw how hard it was for Asian American actors. So then you decided to start your own management company. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I support a small group of actors, Asian actors. And I'll turn down offers from my clients if I feel like they're getting coolie wages or crappy billings. If they're going to work, they're going to get exactly what the white actors get, or they don't do it. It's hard, though. I don't want them to lose the part. Some have families to support, but if they take the work, they'll feel like Chinamen. What do you mean by that last part? You know what I mean. Like, my clients will have to take roles where they're playing into a stereotype. That kind of Fu Manchu shit that Hollywood keeps pushing. Huh, yeah. But wouldn't you say that's unavoidable? Asians in the industry have been vocal about the racist portrayals Hollywood has towards our community. But these kinds of roles still get written. Yeah, but, you know, at least I'm doing something about it. You can hear people cry about Hollywood not giving Asians a voice, but Asians don't give Asians their voice. You need to get the power first. Look at Joy Luck Club. The only way to get power is to do what it takes to first get to the top. By the mid-90s, things started to shift a little in Hollywood. A 
handful of Asian-led projects got backed by real money. The Joy Luck Club, the Wedding Banquet. They were critically acclaimed, with good roles for Asian actors. And Galen started to see other potential paths in Hollywood, outside of acting. The first was as a manager. He started repping other Asian actors in town, who were facing the same kind of struggles. His company was called Asian Talent Force. Uh, I have to say that when I had Galen as my manager, I started getting booked on things. I, I booked a movie in Malaysia because of Galen. Galen mostly repped his friends, like Dom McGuilly. He told me Galen would bring baked goods to the offices of people he wanted to win over. Then he wasn't afraid of being direct. I talked to an agent who told me one time Galen asked him point blank, why don't you rep any Asian people? Well, I've never had this conversation with him, but the dynamics of, particularly if you were dealing drugs, is not much different than being a manager in show business. Mm. And, and the negotiations that are involved, he, could, he found a lot of parallels. The other path Galen pursued was as a writer. Like everyone else in Hollywood, Galen had screenplays. He seems to have been writing since he first got to L.A. And by the mid-90s, his writing started to gain traction. In one of his scripts, a Chinese opera star helps an American convict escape from the FBI. It's filled with action and parodies of Asian stereotypes. An agent at William Morris actually read this and flagged it as a possible vehicle for Jackie Chan. I think because of his background and what he had become specialized in, there weren't that many people who could be as authentic about the subject matter as Galen Ewan. He lived the genre, and I think he peddled that. That's what made, would make him unique and special over other writers who had won awards and, and had very, very big deals. Galen's first credited writing gig was on a series called Vanishing Sun, starring Russell Wong. Running from oppression... Yearning for freedom, he came to America. It was one of the first shows where the Asian characters actually had backstories, unlike the shitty parts Galen, Ron, and other Asian actors were getting. Oh my God, for, for Asian Americans, it was huge. So Vanishing Sun was the first time, you know, they actually gave like, oh, you know, right for Asians, you know, but of course it's gotta be around a triad story, you know. But it, it was huge, it was huge for our community. Ron Yuan was in an episode of Vanishing Sun. It was his first TV guest star gig. And it was the first time he worked with my uncle Galen. The first thought of Galen when I met him was I thought he was shady. So because he was he was sitting, you know, in his fucking place going, yeah, man, hey, how you doing, man? So uh, I heard you're from New York. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I was just going, wow, he's kind of like subtly, passive-aggressively like interrogating me, you know? That impression of his voice was spot on. It's almost like, you know what? I'm just too cool to give any effort on my voice, so I'm just going to talk to you like this, and you're just going to have to hear me. So that's, that's kind of... <laughs> there were 13 episodes of Vanishing Sun, and Galen was brought on to write episode four where Russell Wong visits an old friend in Oakland who gets caught up in a gang. 
And coincidentally, that was the episode that I auditioned for in the character Crazy Boy 6. Crazy Boy 6. This was the first time, as far as I could tell, that Galen wrote a character based on Tom Tom, a.k.a. Crazy 6, the leader of the Soy Sing Boys. Before Ron auditioned, he reached out to Galen to ask about the character. He did not want to tell me, never called me back. I was trying to get some more insight on this guy. I'm like, okay, I'm going to base it off a guy that I knew that, you know, came to America when he was about 12 from Hong Kong and then was so enraptured with the MTV uh, culture. So he would be just more more B-boy. Ron rolled into the audition room with swagger. I did something you're never supposed to do. I brought a prop, but it was a whip chain. And the way I did it was like basically interrogating a guy as I was engrossed in the whip chain. And anyways, they loved it. Ron got the part. And only then did he hear back from Galen. It turns out Galen was still working as a manager. And one of his clients was up for the same role. Galen finally called me back after I booked it. And it was almost like, hey, Ron, man, um, yeah, sorry. I didn't call you back, you know, just been really busy, you know, and I was coaching the guys, but... I heard you got it, so hey, congratulations. You know, I just went, oh yeah, thanks, Galen, okay. You know, it's like, so what did you do on it? You know, what did, what did you think you did that was, you know, different? You know, it's probably because of the martial arts. I, I really didn't think you were going to get it. And I just went, wow. The day before shooting, Galen called again, but this time with a note from the network. They wanted Ron to use a Chinese accent. Ron's surprised, because everyone seemed really into the character he developed. Galen said, nope, they changed their minds. You know, you can do a Chinese accent, right? Because, you know, if not, they may have to recast. And I was just like, no, I can do a Chinese accent fine. I could do a Hong Kong, I could do Mandarin, whatever. It's just that this character doesn't need a Chinese accent, Galen. To Ron... Using an accent was against everything he stood for, playing Asian characters who weren't stereotypes, but he didn't want to be difficult. The next day, Ron shot his scenes with this hybrid, a slight Chinese accent meets urban swag, as he puts it. But it just felt off. He couldn't take it anymore. So he confronted the producer on set, Stu Siegel. He's like, you okay? I'm just like, yeah, Stu, I I just want to know, man, um... What happened? You know, why am I doing, like, why were you guys not happy with this? Because Galen called me saying that you guys weren't happy, but I, I modeled this character after real true gangsters that I know. And, and, you know, and he said, excuse me, Galen said, what? Fuck that motherfucker. Do you know how hard we were fighting for you to preserve your performance? We got in touch with Stu Siegel, the producer. He said he doesn't remember this story. But a freelance writer like Galen wouldn't be asked to give network notes to an actor. He also said those kind of words would never come out of his mouth in a professional setting. Either way, Ron had already shot half his scenes. It was too late to change up his performance. So Ron says he had to commit. Who's this? Friend of yours? No, not my friend. Who are you? White boy? You got on white boy clothes? Maybe you just college boy, why? I'm his teacher. 
I think you are confused. I am his teacher. You're not a good enough teacher for him. He needs the best. Now, there are a lot of different ways you could read this disaster of a story. One thought I've had is that it was a power move. Galen was testing Ron to see if he could humiliate him. The other thought I've had is the real-life Crazy Six, Tom Tom, likely would have had a Chinese accent. And I do think to Galen, authenticity mattered. From what I've learned about my uncle, I think both things are true. He probably did want the story to feel as real as possible. But I think he also wanted to be the toughest guy in the room. So he manipulated Ron, lied to him, messed with his head to get what he wanted. Galen brought an authority to writing about gang culture that, you know, was was enviable to, you know, a suburban-based kid like me. I asked Brian Nelson, one of the staff writers on Vanishing Sun, what he saw in Galen as a writer. He told me the title for my uncle's episode, Single Flame, is a reference to a scene where Russell Wong holds his hand over a lit candle to prove himself to the gang. External power, anybody good. Internal power is even better. Show me, mainland boy. Pick a candle. Yetim hua. Single flame. You pick. He uses the force of his chi, basically, to extinguish the flame without touching it. And it's it's a very sort of small moment, but it's very striking. And that feels to me like that came from Galen. I don't think that the writer's room, I'm not sure we would have found that moment. When I watch the episode now, I can tell my uncle was starting to develop the themes and characters that he'd go on to write in his feature script. It's all in the game. The language of it, I remember the violence of it, and it's not, it's not the violence or the language of a James Bond movie, but it was definitely from the street. It was definitely from gangs. Don McGuilly remembers reading it for the first time. It established him as a writer for gang violence and the realities of uh, urban life, particularly in the Asian community. That, that became his niche. Ron Yuan had heard Galen was shopping around the script, but never read it. After the Vanishing Sun debacle, they kind of stopped talking. Ron didn't even know Galen sold it's all in the game, or that it eventually got turned into the movie Crazy Six, or that somewhere along the way, it got totally whitewashed. So basically, the final film ended up getting rewritten where it took place in Eastern Europe instead of Oakland Chinatown. Wow. Yes. Wow. Uh, instead of it being about uh, a crack deal, it was about a plutonium deal. Um, and they got rid of all of the Asian actors. Uh, and my uncle was played by Rob Lowe. That pisses me off. It's frustrating. It's, yeah, because... Look, as much negative stuff I might have on Galen, like for me, like I said, I feel like that script, you know, if it was true to heart, was probably a really, really well-written script. So you've gone from being an actor to being a talent manager to being a writer. What made you start writing? Was it to get the power we talked about earlier in the industry? <laughs> no, it wasn't about that. Really? Um, I never in a million years ever thought I would be a writer. 
I just wanted to write from my heart and knew there was no possibility for me to be a writer, but I didn't care. My whole life I thought I was stupid. Hmm. This is amazing to me. Yeah. Now, a lot of the stories you've written center around Asian American characters. Is that something that's driving you to write? Uh, you know, the films I write aren't about Asians per se, but about people who want acceptance. I never felt accepted by anybody, hmm. only other outsiders. Oh, that's interesting. So then, where do you find your inspirations for the stories you want to tell? I like finding the honesty within myself, whether it's pain or happiness. Writing is the greatest therapy in the world. I think for any writer to be successful, you have to write from your heart. I've learned things about my uncle that were hard to hear. Stories that scared me, disappointed me. And sometimes, honestly, he did seem like a huge jerk. But none of that changes how I feel. That my uncle's script shouldn't have gotten whitewashed. I wanted to know who changed my uncle's life story. Who thought it was okay to take a movie about Oakland Chinatown and move it to Eastern Europe? Who thought it was no big deal to replace the Asian American lead based on my uncle with Rob Lowe? So original Crazy Six involved Galen personally. So we did quite a rewrite. <laughs> I think we're in a different era and I don't think we would alter your uncle's vision today the way we did then. Next time on Magnificent Jerk, I find the people who made Crazy Six. Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. Our producers are Melissa Akiko-Slaughter and Maria Robbins-Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior engineers are Davey Sumner and Marina Pais. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kawugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Yuan. The recreations in this episode are performed by Viet Huang and Clara Chung. Special thanks to Auntie Esther, Auntie Joanne, Yowei Shaw, Stuart Sugarman, and Aaron Williams. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening.